Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're John chapter 20. I'll start at verse 24, and I'm going down to 31. We saw Sunday evening, if you recall. Sunday evening of Resurrection Day. And the disciples were gathered, and Jesus came, and he showed them his scars. He spoke to them. Um, Luke also tells us about that same event, and we realize he, he ate a piece of broiled fish in front of them. Uh, he, 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 he taught them some important things. We, we know that happened. But one disciple wasn't there. It was Thomas. He was not among them when that gathering took place. And then this happens, verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. That, that, what, anyone know what that means? Twin, right? He, and he's often listed beside Matthew. So the suspicion is that he's Matthew's twin. Was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he, he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails... And put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He actually says it in a much harsher way, and I'll tell you that in a minute. After eight days, so now we're at the uh, 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 following uh, Monday. His, dis- his disciples were again inside. They're apparently in the same room, and the door's locked again. Thomas with them this time. Jesus came and the doors, having been locked, actually, stood in their midst and said, Shalom, in Hebrew, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Would you say with me, do not be unbelieving, but be believing, believing, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Let's say that. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, John, uh, this is not a couple of verses just hanging there. I've heard people say all sorts of silly things about it as if uh, th- these verses absolutely apply. John goes on to say, we disciples saw a lot more, more miracles than this. A lot more miracles than this. And, and we didn't believe. We, and he, then he turns to us, the readers, and says, but I, I trust you will. Therefore, many other signs also performed, uh, uh, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that that believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. What faith sees. Faith by its nature involves risk. That's what makes it faith. If you could see it, you wouldn't call it faith. It would be something else. Uh, Acknowledgement, I guess. I'm committing myself to something I can't prove. I'm believing that something exists which hasn't arrived. I'm seeing something with spiritual eyes that I haven't seen yet with my physical eyes. And if that faith is going to last until the promise is fulfilled, I must make a long-term commitment to that decision because no faith goes untested. Say that. No faith goes untested. I don't care how small it is. No faith goes untested. Whenever you walk, you're going to get tested uh, and pressed on it. I must press past obstacles and nurture my faith so that I will endure over time. Some answers arrive much sooner than others. But in one way or another, faith always requires me to walk steadily towards something I don't see, but I believe God told me is there. I like that. I'm going to say it again. Faith always requires me to walk steadily towards something I don't see, but I believe God told me is there. I've decided that what I would gain, I will gain if I'm right, is so much more valuable than what I will lose if I'm not, that I'm going to pursue that promise by faith. 
The Apostle Paul weighed the cost versus benefit of following Jesus this way. Why don't you read it? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He has just talked about suffering. He said that we, if he says, he says to every one of us, he says, the spirit is within us testifying that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and heir, fellow heirs of Christ. And then he adds this, if indeed we suffer with him. Now, it doesn't just mean persecution. It, it does include that if that's necessary. But if you follow the Lord Jesus, you will suffer. You'll suffer by denying your flesh. It's just a whole lot of things that you'll say no to. And there's a suffering to it. And, and to, say not, to say there isn't, that it's just you know, other things, is, is ridiculous. There's a suffering in serving the Lord. You're going to put aside an awful lot of your own things, your own time, your own ambitions, your own finances. You're going to serve him and pour yourself out. And, and it will require suffering. But here's the other side of the equation. You've got, you got to consider this. Yes, it suffers. You suffer when you follow Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, you sure suffer when you follow the devil too. He enslaves you. It's a different kind of suffering. He takes all of these appetites and fears and stuff and just locks you. And he, by the time he's done, you're nothing. He just grinds you down. So if I have to pick suffering, I'm going with Jesus. <laughs> you know, I just, you got to pick your poison here. You, which suffering do you want? Because you're going to have it. You're either going to go into bondage or you're going to start, you're going to go the costly a crossway of following Jesus, bearing your cross, and serving him. This one leads to eternal life. And freedom, may I add. And dignity. And you find yourself, and you rise up. He, he doesn't, he, he, he makes this, he makes you a strong man, a strong woman. He raises you up. I, I prefer this kind of suffering. Paul says, given what I've, what, what's in front of us, he says, all that I've suffered, he says, I consider it, Nothing. And you've got to remember, he's seen heaven. You know, you can hardly call Paul's faith. I mean, the guy's been there. He's seen it. He's heard it. He says, I can't even describe it in words. But he says, what's waiting for us is so wonderful that whatever I suffer, and Paul really went for it. I mean, he gave it all. And he just walked himself into one thing after another. But he says, it, none of it compares to what's waiting for me. He's, he's making a step of faith. His eyes of faith saw beyond this present world to the eternal blessings of the age to come. In his mind, the benefits of eternal life are so wonderful that he gladly paid whatever price he had to pay to go there and to take as many people with him as possible. He saw the prize waiting at the end of the race. He saw the victory waiting at the end of the battle. And he refused to let anyone or anything take that away from him. We tend to talk about faith as something people have and some, some people have and some people don't. But I don't think that's accurate. Paul tells us that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And though he was speaking to believers when he made that statement, I suspect it's true of unbelievers as well. I think God gives everyone a measure of faith. The difference lies in where that faith is aimed. What do those eyes of faith see? What goal is that faith pursuing? As we'll see in our study today, Thomas had faith, a lot of it. The problem with Thomas was that his faith was aimed in the wrong direction. He had allowed a lie to capture his imagination. And then he stubbornly kept believing it. But there's an important lesson we can learn from Thomas. His example can challenge us to focus our faith on the promises of God. I'm going to argue today that Thomas actually had a lot of faith. It was aimed the wrong direction. That he was deeply committed to a vision he had in his mind. And that you and I can do the same. We can get sour. We can start we can, and listen, you can hear it in people's talk. I mean, and I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. Um, you can hear the kind of negative stuff and the worry that comes pouring out of our lips. And sometimes we're, we're so determined that everything's going to hell in a handbasket that don't confuse me with the facts. I don't, uh, don't tell me any good stuff. No, 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 no. Shh. I'm not taking any of that doubt. It's going bad, I tell you. And our mind gets in that thing 
And, 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 it, and it's literally, a for, we've taken our gift of faith and we've focused it on negative things. It's very important to me now. I want, I want to take you back into that room, that locked room, and I want you to, I want you to see Thomas and I want you to, to feel this because uh, you, there's, there's more there. One of the original 12 disciples was missing when Jesus appeared to the others on that Sunday evening. It was Thomas, who John reminds us was nicknamed Didymus, a Greek word which means twin. John has also shown us examples of, of the unbelief and confusion that were present in Thomas. did it a couple of times in his gospel. But here he shows us a level of unbelief that is frankly shocking. After encountering the resurrected Jesus, the other disciples repeatedly told Thomas. I, I, that's in, that's the, that's, I'm telling you, that's in the language. He, they said it over and over again, not just once. We have seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe it all. Do you hear the disrespect in that word? He doesn't say, I, will, I want to touch his scars. The, the, it's an odd, I mean, there's lots of words for the word touch. Uh, he, he picked, the, the word that John puts in there is, is, is balo, I'll cast my hand into it. There's a violence to it. Unless I stick my finger into his scars and, and then thrust my hand into his, into his side. That's an angry man. This isn't a healthy guy. This isn't just sort of skepticism. There, there's fire in the belly. There's something wrong here. How do you ever talk about Jesus that way? You've walked with this, this, this one. You love him. You've watched his beauty and sweetness. You've watched his holiness, his power. You're going to do what to his scars, Thomas? What is wrong with you? They come to him and he says, he's alive. No, no, Thomas, we've seen him. We touched him, Thomas. We ate food in front of us. And he comes back and looks like shove my hand into his scars. I don't believe. Wow. Where did that come from? John quotes Thomas's cruel words. To show us that even this most skeptical of, of all disciples eventually had to yield to the overwhelming evidence that Jesus had risen. Yes, he does. He finally believes and says, my Lord, my God. But he also wants us to hear the profound statement Jesus made when he rebuked him. Thomas becomes an example of what not to do. Eight days after that Sunday evening meeting, Jesus' disciples were again gathered in the same room. And this time, Thomas was among them. Again, Jesus entered through locked doors and stood in their midst. And again, the first thing he said was, Shalom, peace to you. But this time, he turned directly to Thomas, and he said, and this is, this is literal, bring your finger here. Yeah, it doesn't just say reach. It says, it says Pharaoh, bring your finger over here. You know? <laughs> bring your finger here, and, 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 and see my hands, and bring your hand... And then Jesus says the word, thrust it into my side. Oof. Eight days earlier, when Thomas had made that defiant statement about the proof he would need in order to believe, he hadn't realized that Jesus was alive, nor that he could hear what he was saying. But now he discovered how wrong he had been. Jesus quoted those ugly words back to him. He invited him to thrust his finger into the scars on his hands and thrust his hand into the scar on his side. Listen, that's going to be a scar too. You remember when, 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 they, when, when Jesus is crucified, he's not way up there. He's, he's, he's maybe a feet or maybe a foot off the ground or so. He's, he's on a, they put the cross piece on this post there. And when the soldier, when the soldier decided, it, I mean, was told to, to make sure he's dead, he took his spear and it's very simple. He just puts it right under the rib cage and slits the heart. So he just, and up it goes and just cuts him open and then pours out. That's quite a scar. That's right there. He says, thrust your hand into my scar. Ooh. And then he added, and stop becoming faithless or unbelieving and become faithful. There's no indication that Thomas needed to touch Jesus. 
it appears that he was instantly convinced, not only by the fact that he saw Jesus standing in front of him, but probably by this, also by the supernatural knowledge that Jesus displayed concerning the statement he had made. He had quoted him almost exactly. And Jesus did not rebuke Thomas harshly, knowing that his statement about thrusting his hand into the scars had been heard was enough of a rebuke. All Jesus had to say is, bring your finger over here, bring your hand. Go ahead, Thomas, thrust them into my scar. And Thomas says, I'm so sorry I said that. You know. Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. And those words expressed both submission and faith. He declared Jesus to be the messianic king. That's the my Lord part. He's the messianic king, the son of David. And the divine son of God, my God. He, Jesus' response to Thomas' confession was muted. It was wonderful to know that Thomas now believed. But he had stubbornly refused to believe until Jesus stood in front of him. And that reaction can hardly be called faith at all. He simply acknowledged what he could see and touch. And what was possible for him during those days before Jesus ascended into heaven would not be possible for the vast majority of, the human, of humans in the future. You see the problem? We can do this for Thomas, but we cannot do this for, for the rest of humanity. They would be required to trust the promises of Scripture and the apostles' testimony. In most cases, they would receive no further proof. And if everyone required the proof Thomas did, the saving plan of God would stop at a few hundred people. So Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, do you believe Blessed are the ones who did not see. It's actually in the past tense. Did not see and yet believed. Believed should be believed past. In other words, your faith is not admirable, Thomas. Who wouldn't believe if I stood in front of them and they could put their finger in my scars? The faith that's worth celebrating is when someone hears the truth proclaimed, recognizes that my resurrection fulfills the promises of Scripture. And then chooses to believe that God has done what he said he would do. You see, chooses. We should take note of the fact that Jesus' statement about those who are blessed points back in time. He calls Thomas to look back at those who did not see and yet believed. That kind of faith was modeled by Abraham and all the great men and women who walked with God. That's the kind of faith that is pleasing to God. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But that's not the kind of faith Thomas had chosen yet. I'm going to do a real axe job on Thomas here today. And, and I want to, I want to in, in all fairness, this man became one of the great apostles. He carried the gospel all the way to India. Today in India, there is still a Thomasite church. It goes back, clear back in time. Thomas died. To, to, one report says full of arrows. In fact, they, they even know in India where the spot is, where he died. Well, the other is he was beaten with bats. I don't know which it is, but they, he, he died a martyr. He ca carried the gospel on, walks it on foot all the way, preaching all the way and, and carries it to India. So, boy, when he got it, he got it. We have to honor him as a great man. This is his weak moment. This is his problem. This is what he had to process through. Isn't it sweet of the Lord that he walks us all through our, where we are? He works with us. And, and uh, he does that with you. He does it with me too. And praise the Lord. So I'm, 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 I'm doing an axe job on him. But, but come on. He's a great man. Having presented Thomas's weak faith to us, John turns to us, his readers, and challenges us to do better. He reminds us that Thomas and the other disciples had seen many more signs than he had been able to record in this gospel. Yet neither Thomas nor the others had expected the resurrection. Not one of them expected it. And not one believed until they actually saw the resurrected Jesus standing in front of them. John hopes that we, his readers, will not follow their example. So he says to us, but these things have been written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In effect, he wants us to declare what Thomas finally declared, my Lord, my God, but to do so without having to see Jesus with our physical eyes. 
He wants us to believe his testimony about Jesus. And it says, if we will believe in his name, meaning if we will believe the truth about him, God will give us life. In the introduction to this gospel, John promises those who believe that God will give to them the right to become children of God. So the life he will give us is an eternal relationship with himself. Thomas's unbelief needs some explanation. In light of all the miracles he had seen, how is it possible for someone to be so defiant, so angry, when his fellow disciples tell him that Jesus is alive? After all, he had personally watched Jesus raise dead people back to life, had he? Name somebody. Lazarus. Lazarus. I'm going to mention that big time in a minute. Give me another. Jairus' uh, daughter, uh, the widow of Nain's son. I mean, the, 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 the funeral procession's going by. Jesus goes up and, bzzz, and the, up he comes, you know. It's, it, this is good stuff. I mean, he has every right to, I mean, this is, he's seen this kind of thing. And as, as you, you just mentioned, uh, he, in, within the past few weeks, he had seen Lazarus come out of a tomb in which he'd been buried for four days. Jesus was only dead for three. The only answer I can find comes from John's earlier references to Thomas. The first is found in chapter 11 where we hear Thomas's gloomy response when Jesus announced that he was going back to Bethany to care for Lazarus. Under the circumstances, that was a very dangerous thing to do. And when Thomas heard Jesus say that, this was his response. Let us also go so that we may die with him. He was convinced that Jesus was going to get them all killed. But unlike Judas Iscariot, Thomas didn't decide to betray Jesus. He decided to go back to Jerusalem and die with him. You might say his faith was strong. But sadly, it was focused on dying bravely, not waiting for a resurrection. It was convinced that their hopes had come to an end. And then what Thomas believed would happen, happened. You know, he, he's got this, this prophecy going. He's got this, I, I took that comment when he, when he made it down there by the, by the Jordan River, let's all go die with him kind of thing. It's kind of like, you know, he was just expressing frustration. John tells us that. To give us an insight to Thomas. That, he really did believe that. We're going to go die with him. This is going to fail. He's going to get killed. We'll get killed with him. I love him. You love him. Let's go die. You, you hear his faith? What, do you, what did the eyes of faith see? What did Thomas's eyes see? He had a vision in front of his eyes. He saw in his mind the future. And he went for it. And he went toward it. And, 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 so, and then, to make matters worse, Jesus indeed is arrested. He is crucified. They're all in hiding, and the, high, and the high priests want to kill them. It's all moving right along his prediction. You see it? Everything began to unfold just as Thomas had predicted. The vision he had seen in his mind, the vision he was believing for, was coming true. That is until the other disciples came and joyfully announced that Jesus had come back to life and that they'd actually touched his scars and watched him eat broiled fish. But by then it appears, Thomas had grown angry at Jesus for leading them all to this tragic end. And I think that's why he spat out those words about thrusting his hand into Jesus' scars. That's the giveaway. His mind had been so focused on the negative scenario that his fears had produced that he had not listened seriously when Jesus explained that he would suffer, die, and then rise again on the third day. His faith was focused on an entirely different direction. So what Jesus said made no sense to him. This insight helps us understand the other reference John gives us about Thomas. Just before he was arrested, Jesus promised the disciples that he would go to heaven and prepare a place for those who believe in him. And then Thomas responded by making the strangest statement. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? 
That comment is so confused. Most of us don't know what to do with it when we read it, and we simply move on. Have you come to that? You read that passage, John 14 there. Jesus says, oh, I go to prayer place for you, and if I go there, you know, I'll take you to my soul. It's beautiful. And Thomas says this really stupid thing. It's just like, what? And everybody, it's, it's, and then you just kind of, I don't know why I said it, and you move on. There is no explanation. Why did John put it in? John's careful. That's what I, I'm learning. Like he tells us it's about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Why? Because you needed to know that. You needed to know that. It, it tells you a great deal about what was going to, the amazing thing of the resurrection. John's telling us about Thomas. He's saying, I'm going to show you the man's heart so you will understand what he's going through so you don't do what he did. <laughs> That's where he's going with it. He's teaching us off of Thomas. I believe John gave us these glimpses of Thomas to help us understand the negative reaction when, we, when he heard the news about the resurrection. His fears spoke so strongly, he couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. His faith was strong, but it was misdirected. He was absolutely certain that they were all going to die and Jesus' mission was going to end in a grave. And he protected that misguided faith and rejected all doubts that came along. So when he heard the report that Jesus had physically appeared in a locked room and had shown the disciples his scars, he angrily rejected it. Look, we're going to apply this to us now. I'll just speak for myself, but my suspicion is that you do too in areas. There's areas where fear grips us. Is areas where it can, be, it can have to do with your family, it can have to do with our country, it can have to do with uh, your, your, your sense of calling or purpose. It can, it, it, you just name it. You can, you can get this thing that sets in your mind and you see this negative deal. This, I, 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 you know, my health isn't good, uh, I'm going to get weak and die. I mean, it's all over but the shouting. Uh, I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, it's, it's, I've got... Others that are fresher, but I don't want to share those. Um, <laughs> this one goes back. I was, I was teaching at the Bible college, and, and uh, we lived in, in Monrovia at the time. And uh, I, I, I developed a, a tumor on my arm. And uh, I didn't go to the doctor or anything uh, right away. I, but the minute I had that tumor, I decided... I was probably in the final stages of cancer. <laughs> this wasn't, I mean, I, and, and I can laugh about it, but I'm telling you, I thought I was. You know, I hear what was, I've suddenly got this tumor. Oh my goodness, it's all over. And I, I remember lying on my bed in the bedroom, and all I needed was a lily, you know, just on my chest. <laughs> Because, you know, I, I looked like I was ready for the, for the, for the, for the funeral home. I, and, I, and I went through all sorts of deep agony and suffering. Oh, I've got a wife and children. They're all going to get left. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? I'm dying. I'm dying. And as, as funny as I, I'm telling you, this picture locked in my mind, and I believed it. The fear gripped me. I saw the scenario. I saw the whole thing. I could have told you what would happen, what the doctor would have said. I mean, it, anyone else ever do this? You get these scenarios pictured in your mind. Your mind runs. Something happens. Some issue's there. And your mind runs forward. And you fill in all the spots. And if you let yourself, that becomes to you as real as if you had seen it. It's, it's, it's virtually certain in your mind. And what I'm suggesting is that we, we are literally applying our gift of faith to that fear. And, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's crippling when it happens. Who among us hasn't been faith, faced with a situation in which fear took over our thinking? By the way, what I had was just a little blood tumor. And uh, when the doctor told me, I thought, you got to be wrong. You know, no, it was <laughs> seriously. I, I was given life back. You know. It's embarrassing. We pictured a future in our minds and saw only defeat 
It's as if the capacity God gave us for faith was used in reverse. We visualized one bad thing happening after another, and as we did, a deep conviction gripped our hearts. We felt certain that this sad scenario was inevitable. Those images in our minds were so real, it felt as if we had already seen reality. I think that's what happened to Thomas, and I think that's what happens at times to most of us. That measure of faith that God has given us is wrongly applied to something false. I find myself believing for negative outcomes, for failure, for sorrow. In my attempt to be real, quote, honest with myself, quote, and intellectually courageous, quote, I refuse any suggestion that things might turn out well. I drive those quote, doubts out of my mind as fast as they try to enter. I refuse to be deceived into hoping when there is no hope. We've seen what Thomas did believe. Now let's consider what Thomas didn't believe. Because it's in answering that question that we find the sources of truth that will turn our faith in the right direction. Here are four. Number one, the scriptures. Thomas wasn't alone in rejecting the promises of Scripture. None of the disciples believed Jesus would rise from the dead. But when the risen Jesus confronted their unbelief, they did it, he did it by taking them back to the Scriptures. Do you recall that? Yes, he showed them his scars. But his greatest frustration was that they hadn't believed the promises in the Word. Listen to what he said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? He's appealing to them. Look, do you remember what happened? The two disciples, it's, it's Cleopas and somebody else. It might be his wife, Mary, because she's also a disciple. And, and they're walking to Emmaus. It's about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's a priestly town. They're on the way probably home. And uh, they're, they're walking along. And, uh, and suddenly this stranger comes up behind them and catches up to them and is walking along with them. And they do not recognize him. I don't know if he's wearing a hoodie. You know, he, he, you, know you have the prayer shawl kind of thing so that you couldn't see him that way. Uh, he, does, uh, he does have a radiance to him now that he's resurrected. There's a different, there's a different beauty to him. Uh, but he, he, what he doesn't do is go, Cleopas, look at it, it's me. Check, check, check it out, see it, look at it, touch, go ahead, touch it. Go on, come on, no, you do. Go on, you can touch it. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He starts talking to him from the word. He takes them back to the promises of the, of, of the prophets. And he says, look at this. Look at this, because he asked them, what's up, guys? And they said, well, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know? He says, we, we've just had this Jesus of Nazareth, and we had so hoped he was the Messiah. And they killed him. You know, but we think he's a great prophet. They had already degraded him. It's there. It had already degraded him in their mind. He was no longer the Messiah. He was now a really, really good prophet who got martyred. And so Jesus is starting to take him back to the scriptures and walks along with them. And then he says what I read to you. His, when, when, he, when he found he says, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. What's wrong with you? Why don't you believe the Bible? Is what he said. And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. On, sun, on the Sunday evening of his resurrection, he said this to them. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses. That's the first four or five books of the Bible. The prophets and the Psalms. I mean he covers the entire spectrum. Must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He wanted their faith to see what God, the word of God saw. He wanted God's promises to aim their faith in the right directions. In his mind, the Bible was the most important source of faith. Do you follow that? In Jesus' thinking, he keeps coming back to, doesn't matter what you've seen. What does the word say? 
What did it say? What does it say? He, keeps, he pulls them right back to that. Number two, the words of Jesus. During the years they, uh, they were together, Jesus often prophesied to the disciples. He told them what was going to happen, but because the scenario he pictured wasn't what they had expected to hear, and because fear had already filled their minds, they didn't listen to him. They either openly rejected what he said or became passive and confused. The openly rejected, I give you a Matthew 16 reference. What's that one? Do you remember? That's where, where Jesus says uh, the Son of Man's going to die and rise again. Peter's response is, never shall that happen to you, Lord. And, and Jesus' response to Peter was, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> Boom. Talk about knocking heads. Uh, Peter was rebuking him. He's correcting his theology. See, Peter knows how it's supposed to be. He's been taught from a child. Messiah comes in glory. Israel becomes the chief of all nations. Everything, hallelujah. It's good times roll. What do you mean? You're going to suffer. Get over it. That isn't, and, and Jesus, I mean, talk about firm and swift. Get thee behind me, Satan. That's what he thought of that. No, no. The Messiah must first suffer and die for the sins of the world. Or everybody perishes. What a difference it would have made. If they had simply said. If Jesus says it. It must be true. So I choose to believe it. Why don't we practice. If Jesus says it. It must be true. So I choose to believe it. Do you notice the word choice? Faith is not something that just has to, well, you know, I'm waiting for it. It'll either hit me or don't. There is a gift of faith, but that's another, another, another question altogether. The kind of faith we're talking about is a choice. You decide who you're going to follow, who you're going to believe. And, and, and it's essential that you do that. The apostle's testimony. Thomas didn't believe the Bible. He didn't believe Jesus. And he didn't believe those who reported that they had seen Jesus alive either. He knew their character. He knew they weren't liars. He knew they weren't superstitious. He knew they wouldn't say something like that if they knew it weren't true. But he angrily rejected their testimony anyway and said that he wouldn't believe until he could see it with his own eyes. In other words, he wouldn't believe anyone but himself. Mercifully, he was able to do what most of future humanity, including us, would not. He wouldn't believe the apostles' testimony. Every one of us has to come to a place where we choose to decide, who will I believe? And if you become one of those people who says, no, no, no I'm a realist. I don't believe anything but myself. I will tell you where you'll end up. Your world gets smaller and smaller because honestly, it's, these are huge issues and you'll pull in people who say, I believe nothing I can't prove and touch and see end up going insane. You look at the, you look at the philosophers who've gone there. They end up blowing their heads off in one case. They end up, a lot of suicide because nothing's more fun than a meaningless universe. What a party. When they say eat, drink, and be merry, they just mean stay drunk. They do. They drink themselves silly till they can't bear it anymore because there's no meaning in anything. You have to trust someone. You have to decide who will I listen to? Who will I follow? Who, who knows? I would suggest to you there's no one in the league of Jesus Christ. I have decided, and I believe his apostles have told me the truth. I believe Peter and Andrew, James and John, I believe these are honest truth tellers. Everything, everything displays that. They, they died for their faith. Not one recanted. There's nothing that gives any sense of impurity or, or marketing anything. There was nothing in it for them. And they passionately preached him. I mean, I just told you about Thomas. This man who struggled like this walks and preaches all the way to India. 
proclaiming Christ and dies full of arrows or beaten to death with bats. No one ever said, I, I, I didn't, it's not true. Peter dies upside down. Uh, his, he, before he dies, they crucify his wife in front of him and he cries to her, remember Christ. That's not a phony. When you're, when you're nailed to something dying, you don't play games. These men and women believed it to their toes. They knew he was the one. Who will you follow? Who will you, who will you allow to tell you what the truth is, even when your senses and your fears say something else? Who will you allow to bring you back and say, this is the truth, whether you think it is or not? This is true. Thomas had eight days to walk over to the tomb, empty tomb and look inside. Did you remember that? I mean, he's got eight days. Just go over and peek. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't. But the fact was that the tomb was empty. And that fact didn't change his mind at all. I think he had no doubt the tomb, that tomb was empty. And in order to remain that stubborn, he must have invented his own explanations of why Jesus' body wasn't there. It's actually horrible to realize that he must have said to himself things that were similar to what Caiaphas, the high priest, paid the soldiers who had guarded the tomb to say. He had to, there's no body, Thomas, so what, what, what's your explanation? Thomas would have had to say to himself, they stole the body. Someone has it. He starts talking like the devil himself to himself in order to reinforce his fear. When fear controls our faith, it forces us to believe very evil things. Application. Now let's apply this lesson to ourselves. Let's ask ourselves, where is fear controlling my thinking? I, I, I could stop a minute here and just kind of let you ponder. Where, for you, for me, where is fear Controlling my thinking, your thinking. Where have I pictured a negative scenario about the future? Where am I exercising the measure of faith God gave me in the wrong way? Am I stubbornly defending that negative attitude against the clear promises of Scripture? The words which I've heard Jesus speak to me? The testimony of others who have seen God's miraculous power at work. And the empty tomb that still to this day announces that Jesus is risen. We have a team going to Israel. We will see the empty tomb. It's still empty. It, I, I've picked three areas. There's many you can apply it to. I've picked three. These are mine. I, these, if I feel alone... What do these sources say? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Would you say that? I am with you always. Jesus said that. Will I believe them, these sources, or my fear? Will I choose to believe that I am not alone because the risen Jesus is with me? When you get hit hard, when you're in grieving, when you're going through various situations, you can feel very far from God. You can feel dry. You feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. There's just nothing there. You think, you think to yourself, am I making this up? I mean, what is this? Where is he? Well, I can either run and let that fear run. Or I can say, well, what, what does the word say? What does Jesus say? Well, he says, I'm with you sometimes, always, even to the end of the age. And therefore, I may feel dry, I may feel alone, I may feel frightened. But the truth is, because I choose to believe him, the truth is he's here. The truth is he's with me right now, whether I think he is or not. You follow that? This becomes my reality. I determine to believe this, and I will stand here. It's the truth. He's with me, whether I see him or feel him at the moment or not. 
He is with me. Second, do I lack wisdom? What do these sources say? Does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Let's read that. It's James. Does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. The truth is, the truth is that if I need wisdom, all I need to do is ask God and he will give me how much? All I need. And when he, when he will give it to me without reproach. What does that mean? He's not a bit annoyed. He's delighted to have me ask. So I've got problems in front of me. I've got decisions I have to make. I, I, I so can worry about the things that are ahead of me that I'm going to have to decide. I can just chew on them. Or I can say, I will have the wisdom I need when I need it. It will be there. He has promised it. He's, I'm going to have a lot of it, in fact. That's the truth. Either my fear or the truth. Which will I choose? It, will I believe, that, believe them or continue to believe that I'm helplessly wandering without a guide? And finally, do I feel too weak to meet the challenges in front of me? Well, what do the sources say? Let's read this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Say it again. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Will I believe the sources? Will I believe the word of God? Will I believe what Jesus says? Will, will, I, be, will I believe the, the testimony of others? Will I believe the empty tomb? Or will I continue to believe that I will be overwhelmed I can look at my strength I can look at my myself and I can say I can't do this I can't do this or I can say the truth is I can do anything he gives me to do successfully and well that's my reality that's my truth I'm going to believe it and commit to it would you stand with me Thomas taught us how to answer the question, didn't he? In a negative way, unfortunately. I asked the question, where do you have fear? Where has fear captured your imagination? Where, your future? The future of your children? The future of, of, uh, of, of, of our country? Of the church of Jesus Christ? Of your own career, calling, ministry? Is, is what scenarios in there? If it is not aligned with the word of God, then it's born of fear. And it's a false picture. But it will not go of itself. In fact, if, if you don't attack that thing, it'll grow. And it'll develop roots. It gets solid and real. It becomes as real to you as though you had observed reality already. You are t completely convinced of it that's what happened to Thomas that's why, that's why he got so angry and mean he really was in that thing but he was wrong, terribly wrong he didn't believe the word of God and today would be, right now the Lord wants to take our faith and, and, and wherever that fearful thing is, he says I want you to turn and I want you to aim that thing at the word of God at what I say to you I want you to follow what I say not what you fear and I want you to keep focused there. I want you to make that deep decision. I have been doing that in my own life. It settled something in me. You know, I've been thrashing around. And you, if you look for feelings, if you look for kind of, you know, ah, talk to me, this kind of stuff, you, you can work yourself into a frenzy. But if you come back to the solid word of God and just say, the truth is, this is the truth. And I'm not budging from that. It simply will be my truth. It'll settle you. He said it's like a house built on a rock. 
And the wind and the rain and the storm came and beat against that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the word of God. Holy Spirit, we ask for your gentle, kind uh, insight to us. If there is a fearful vision, a fearful thing that our, our hearts have latched onto, would you expose it? Because our intention now is to let you direct our faith properly. To focus us on the truth from the word of God and from our Lord Jesus himself. What does he say to us? And we listen right now, Lord, to you, not to the fear. We bless you. We praise you. We love you. Thank you. We put our hand in yours and say, we can do all things because you strengthen us. We can say that we have the wisdom we need abundantly and without reproach. You will guide us, not might guide us. You absolutely will. So where we've worried and doubted and have been mulling, thank you for the answer before we even see it. Lord, if we feel alone, you have not left us for a second. You are with us always. Jesus, you're here. You're with us. You literally dwell within us. You love us dearly, no matter how we felt. Lone, dry, cold, miserable, it doesn't matter. You're here. You haven't left an inch. We confess the truth, and we stand on it, and we bless you that our house will not fall, but will stand strong. We thank you for the good things. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for our future. We see it now with eyes of faith. In Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with that, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.